It's still October. Happy almost Halloween. Let's talk about vampires. Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. One of my favorite movie-going experiences was some years ago when I saw Nosferatu for the first time, the original one from 1922. Nosferatu is a silent movie, but of course, silent movies were never actually silent. If you were at a silent theater in the 1920s or 1930s, there'd be music. Perhaps a small ensemble, maybe a piano player, maybe an organist. In this case, it was a substantial group of musicians playing a score that they had created for the film. They also had Foley artists on stage making sound effects to go along with the action that the audience was seeing. It was an amazing experience, because not only is the movie very, very good, but the musicians and Foley artists were also very, very good. And it was an absolute joy to see the art of cinema and the art of music and the art of making sound effects with a bunch of weird stuff you have on stage all mesh together. I had an absolutely amazing time, and it's a miracle that I did because Nosferatu, the 1922 film, shouldn't really be allowed to exist. We mostly associate that movie with the director, F.W. Murnau, or with Max Schrenk, the guy who played the vampire in the film. But neither of them were the ones who conceived of doing a movie about a vampire in the first place. Credit for that goes to the producer, Albin Grau. Grau was kind of a weird guy. He was into all sorts of things like mysticism, hermeticism, occult stuff. And he got interested in vampires in World War I. He was in Serbia and he ended up talking to some farmers who told him tales of the local monsters, the local cryptids, the things that people there believed lurked in the dark. Vampires. Walking corpses. Grau thought, this is utterly fascinating, loved the subject matter, and after World War I was over and he was safely back home in Germany, he decided that he would start a film studio devoted to his interests. Magic darkness, occultism, and tales of Eastern European walking corpses. He called his studio Prana Films, decided it would be dedicated to making films about dark mysteries and spooky subject matter. And, given that he was so interested in vampires, there was no better source material for his first movie than a certain 1897 novel, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Grau got himself a director, actors, camera people, and funding, and set about to making a movie about Dracula. However, there was just one problem. Not only did he need to get a director, an actor, a bunch of costumes, a spooky castle, some funding, some cameras, he also needed to get the consent of Bram Stoker's estate. Bram Stoker died in 1912, and in many countries, including the United States at the time, the death of the author meant that their work was in the public domain. 
anybody who wanted to turn it into a movie or radio drama or recorded thing on a wax cylinder could do so. Germany, however, was a bit different. There, Alban Grau and his director, F.W. Murnau, would have to get approval from Stoker's estate. That is, his widow, Florence Balcombe. They asked her. They said, We are a bunch of creepy German occultists, and we're making movies now. Could we please make a movie about your husband's book? Balcombe, we don't know why, told them no. No, the creepy German occultist film nerds would not be allowed to make a thing of her husband's book. Grau and Murnau and the rest of Prana Films were a bit annoyed, so they decided to not make a movie about Dracula. Instead, they would make a movie that was kind of like Dracula, but legally distinct from Dracula. You know, kind of like those Halloween costumes where you are not Katniss from the Hunger Games, you are a girl with a bow and arrow named Hungry Rebel Girl, or that kind of thing. You know what I'm talking about. So, the undead creature in this movie would not be called a vampire. Instead, it would be called Nosferatu, which is indeed an old Romanian word for vampire. Also, the creepy castle-dwelling dead guy in question wouldn't be named Dracula. He would be named Orlok, though he is indeed still a count. And, instead of Orlok going from Eastern Europe to London, he would be going from Eastern Europe to Germany. So, totally different, right? Well, if you watch Nosferatu as somebody who has read Dracula, you will notice how similar the plot is. In fact, the plot of Nosferatu is probably more similar to the original Dracula than many films called Dracula are. It starts with a hapless real estate guy going to a creepy castle in Eastern Europe to do a real estate deal with a guy who is a count and should have servants, but appears to be by himself in this massive castle. The deal goes through, the creepy count buys an estate in a European city, puts himself in a box of dirt, gets himself shipped off to a city with far more blood-filled people in it. Meanwhile, the real estate guy has to escape. Eventually, the action shifts back to the major European city, where the vampire in question is obsessed with a mortal woman there. But things do not ultimately go well for our undead anti-protagonist, and ultimately he meets his eternal end. It's totally Dracula. Also, on some of the posters for the movie, it was promoted as being, quote, freely adapted from Dracula, unquote. So it looks like Nosferatu's marketing team didn't really get the memo about how they weren't supposed to actually be doing Dracula. So, big old oops. There are, though, a few differences. A good copyright lawyer could probably argue that Nosferatu was sufficiently different from Dracula to count as its own thing. For example, at the end of Stoker's novel, Dracula is dispatched with a bowie knife through the heart. And I've always wondered if Stoker put that in to make room for a sequel. I'm not sure if a bowie knife, as fearsome as it is, quote-unquote, counts the way a wooden stake does. In Nosferatu, though, Orlok dies because he is too busy drinking the blood of a pretty lady that he doesn't notice that the sun is coming up. He is distracted by carnality and temptation, and, and being kind of a gross creeper, the first rays of dawn stream through a window, 
His face contorts with horror. He grabs his heart that no longer beats and disappears with the daylight. In fact, Murnau's film is a big part of the reason why we think of vampires as being vulnerable to sunlight in the first place. Even in Stoker's novel, vampires can go out in daylight and be more or less fine. Nosferatu gave us vampires, though, who instantly disintegrate as soon as the sun comes up. There's also another important point, I think. Nosferatu is not sexy. Dracula is. Dracula is creepy and bestial and nightmarish, but he's just as alluring as he is repulsive. He's a terrifying weirdo who turns into a cloud of bats and drinks blood, but in a cool way. People want to be Dracula, or smooch Dracula, or people want to be Dracula and smooch Dracula at the same time. I do not know how that would work. It would violate all kinds of physical laws and also causality, but that's just how sexy Dracula is, and that's what makes him enduring as a character. Count Orlok, though, is not sexy. He's lecherous, and he's carnal, but he's creepy. He's more like an undead, bald Harvey Weinstein. No one wants to smooch Count Orlok. If anything, you want to sit Orlok down and tell him that he needs to work on himself and stay off the incel forums. Orlok seems to draw from a different kind of image of the vampire. The vampire as predator, and also the vampire as being identified with diseases. In Nosferatu, there's lots of rat imagery, and you can see Orlok arriving on a ship with rats scurrying away, and there's this kind of idea that the vampire is arriving in a city, bringing plague with him, in the same way that rats on a ship could bring plague from one shore to another. And yes, I know it was actually the fleas that were on the rats and not the rats themselves. You don't need to email me about that, but, you know, we associate rats with plague. It's the cultural image that we all have. Just go with it. Despite all those differences, though, that wasn't enough for the German legal system. A judge declared that, yes, Nosferatu was a Dracula ripoff, and Prana Films was in something of a situation with their very first release. With only a single movie under their belt, they had produced a masterpiece, while simultaneously getting themselves into serious legal and financial trouble. Florence Balcombe, Stoker's widow, took wooden stake in hand and drove it through the heart of Albin Grau's Prana Films. Faced with the legal costs and the fines related to copyright infringement, Prana Film declared bankruptcy. Nosferatu would be its only release. The court also ruled that all copies of Nosferatu be destroyed. And they were. After the lawsuit, Prana Films burned all copies of Nosferatu. All copies. Except one. There was a copy of the film bound for the United States, where, again, Dracula was already in the public domain, and where the ruling of a distant German judge would have no effect whatsoever. The only remaining copy of Nosferatu debuted in the United States in 1929, and it was a major success because, well, have you seen Nosferatu? It's great! It's a creepy vampire thing, and people love that stuff. So, of course it was a success the American distributors got to work making more prints of the film, and soon the movie became popular worldwide, despite the film studio behind it being nothing more than a bankrupt memory at this point. Before we leave them, though, I want to talk about the fates of Albin Grau 
and F.W. Murnau. Grau continued being a weird mystic guy, and, I am happy to say, not a Nazi. This is always something that you have to think about when you're talking about, like, early 20th century German people. No, he ended up fleeing to Switzerland in the 1930s, von Trapp style, to avoid Nazi persecution, and he eventually died in 1971. F.W. Murnau eventually moved to the United States. With Nosferatu on his resume, he was able to have some success in Hollywood, making a few other films, but he sadly died in a car accident in 1931. He was only 42 years old. His body was shipped back to Germany, and it is buried to this day. Well, most of his body is buried there. Because in 2015, somebody stole his head. I know, I mentioned grave robbing and head stealing just two episodes ago, but here it is again. In July of 2015, somebody dug up F.W. Murnau's body and stole his skull. Apparently, there were some occult symbols and melted black candles around a gravesite, so it looks like somebody disinterred his grave and did weird, creepy occult witch stuff with it, which sounds just amazing. And say what you will about dark magic that incorporates severed heads into midnight rituals, at least it's not phrenology. Anyway... Later on in the 1930s, a bootleg version of Nosferatu started playing in Europe, specifically in Austria. It was called The Twelfth Hour, A Night of Horror. Just as Nosferatu ripped off Dracula, The Twelfth Hour ripped off Nosferatu. It used existing Nosferatu footage, interspersed with new footage, and it also had new title cards. It also had a custom music track on a wax cylinder that was distributed with the film and meant to be played along with the movie. I tried my best to find an English-language version of The Twelfth Hour for this episode, but kept coming up empty, and I later found out that you can't see it. There are only two prints of it in existence, and the watchable one is under lock and key at a French film archive called Cinématique Française, and they apparently have no intention of releasing this bootleg recut Viennese version of Nosferatu from the 1930s. So there is this 1930s bootleg Dracula thing, but a bunch of French film nerds refuse to let it see the light of day, or rather the dark of night because vampires. But in any case, it drives me bonkers, because I will consume literally any form of media with Dracula in it, and now I'm very frustrated that there is a Dracula thing out there from the 30s, and I'm not allowed to see it, even if it's bad. And it's supposed to be really, really bad. Apparently, The Twelfth Hour, A Night of Horror, was panned when it came out, uh, because apparently among the many changes is that they gave it a happy ending, somehow, and I have no idea how you would give the story a happy ending. Like, does the vampire just decide to not be a vampire anymore? Does he decide to become part of a functional and communicative thruple with the Harkers? Who knows? But there's that. By the 1960s, though, both the book Dracula and the film Nosferatu were in the public domain worldwide, which meant that after three decades, Murnau and Grau's film could finally screen in its homeland, Germany. Later on, in 1979, German director Werner Herzog remade Nosferatu, 
but in that version, the vampire is just called Dracula, though he retains Count Orlok's distinctive monstrous look with the bald head, the long claw-like nails, and the bat ears. That film also retains some plot details from Nosferatu, like the German setting in the Count's vulnerability to sunlight. It even includes some dialogue that riffs on the 1931 version of Dracula, the one with Bela Lugosi. In Herzog's film, that Dracula says of the howling of wolves, the children of the night, what music they make. That line is technically in Stoker's novel, but it was Lugosi who really sold it, and I think Lugosi is the reason why we remember it. Also, one more note on the 1979 version of Nosferatu. I watched it this week in English. I looked around for the German version because I didn't want to watch a dub, and then I found out the English version is not a dub. Werner Herzog filmed English dialogue and German dialogue simultaneously. So he did scenes in English, then he did scenes in German, and just made two different versions of the movie, which is absolutely awesome. Werner Herzog's great. Seek out his movies if you enjoy feeling weird. 2000's Shadow of the Vampire is a movie starring John Malkovich and Willem Dafoe. The conceit of that movie is that Max Schrenk, who played Count Orlok, really was a vampire and really did look like a weird, creepy bat-corpse man. To throw suspicion off of the cast and crew, Murnau, in the movie Shadow of the Vampire, insists that Max Schrenk playing Orlok is just a really serious method actor, and he refuses to break character for anything, hence constantly having fangs and only coming out at night. I don't know what to think about Nosferatu, about the filmmakers ignoring the wishes of Stoker's estate and going forward with their project anyway. That wasn't cool of them. However, we all owe them for their major contributions to vampire cinema and vampire lore. And, much like a vampire, the film Nosferatu proved a bit hard to kill. Lawsuits wouldn't do it. Burning copies of the movie wouldn't do it. No, Nosferatu, just like Dracula, got on a ship emerged upon arrival, found itself in a new land, and, just like Dracula biting human beings and turning them into the undead, Nosferatu infected audiences that it saw, giving them a new, alluring, and repulsive version of monstrousness, which really is the most Dracula thing you can possibly do. This podcast is not a vampire. It is not sustained by the blood of the living. No, it is sustained by you, the listeners. To become a member and to get access to exclusive members' content, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Please also give us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcast. Those ratings and reviews help other people find the show. Follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. The show is also on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. We have one more creepy October show for you this month. Talk to you next time. Bye.